Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, Featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. The symbolism will be stark, and the sense of submission will sting. By forming a guard of honour for Liverpool, Manchester City will be paying due respect to their successors as champions. But everyone at the Etihad on Thursday will understand that football never stays still. Rivalries deepen and develop. Liverpool are now the hunted rather than the hunters. Now, I've got to ask, is this the start of a dynasty or just an era of heightened competition? (laughs) Good question. Big question to kick things off. I think there's every chance that, that this could be the beginning of a Liverpool dominated era because the foundations are very solid. With the Liverpool side, I just, I just, I don't see any real weaknesses there. And brick by brick, Jurgen Klopp has, has tinkered and improved and and strengthened their weaknesses. And if he continues to do that, then then Liverpool can can dominate. I also feel that that now that the defence is is so good with Liverpool, they've got the best goalkeeper possibly in the world, the best centre back, two of the most exciting fullbacks in in recent memory alongside another young developing central defender I just think that when you've got that foundation you can actually afford to to lose the odd player in forward areas providing that you sign players of 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 equal level so so Liverpool are in a great position to dominate and it's up to the rest isn't it to to recognize where their weaknesses are, and to strengthen them. City, for example, have got to start prioritising the defence. The same, I think, could could apply to Chelsea, Spurs and Arsenal. I think that that, that all of the principal rivals, Wolves and Leicester are solid, we know that, but but are they good enough to to really challenge Liverpool? I'm not so sure. I think that the big boys all have to recognise what Liverpool did, and that's built from the back. And uh, until they do that, Liverpool, I believe, will continue to be the dominant force. Yeah, well, we're going to look at each of the contenders in some depth, hopefully, uh, over the next um, few minutes or so. But let's just look at the size of the task, Seb. You know, Manchester United are the only club to win three titles on the bounce. Chelsea and City did it twice. Can Liverpool be regarded as a great team on the body of work over, say, the last 15 months? 
Yeah, I think so, Mike, because I, I think the definition of great team has changed over the years, over the generations, because I think in, in previous decades, you'd have to win multiple titles. Now, I think kind of the, the financial competition and the rigors of the game are so extensive and, you know, getting more so because the, the football calendar is expanding and becoming congested all the time. I think you can look at isolated periods of, say, 18 months, two years, look at a club that won a European Cup and then a Premier League title back to back and anoint that as greatness because I, I think the conditions have been altered and I think it's far harder to sustain that kind of level. Also, I think, you know, if you were, if we were talking about the 70s or 80s, what Liverpool wouldn't have next is a direct rival with a unlimited source mm-hmm. of money yeah. capable of reinforcing in every department in this in the space of a single summer. Yeah. So I think kind of when we talk about dynasty, that's what we're thinking of. We're talking about sort of five, ten years of dominance. I don't think that's realistic anymore, but I don't think that the teams that do achieve should be punished for that. Mm. If you look at you know, logically, especially what you've just said there, Seb, City are still the most obvious challengers, aren't they? And I suppose as a former player yourself, Aid, will they get extra motivation from, you know, let's what face it is a bit of a charade on Thursday that, you know, applauding their opponents onto the pitch. As a player, <laughs> does that, that <laughs> stick in the craw? Yeah, it was great big time. That is for sure. <laughs> I mean, football is a very competitive creature. You don't win. Premier League titles without without being ultra competitive. And we know what, what Pep is like as well. He's obsessed with it. And so are those individuals. So no, it will it will rankle and it will fire them up, I'm sure, to to beat to try and beat them on the day. And yeah, I just remember I, I, I think I mentioned this before, maybe not on this podcast, but I used to do I used to ghostwrite for for Ryan Giggs, I used to speak to him regularly. So I got to know him quite well and look, he he's the most decorated player in the history of English football and, and and he he never tired of of the feeling of winning but but it was less the, the thought of winning with Ryan it was the prospect of losing and being second best that acted as his motivation and I think that it, it also acted as motivation for for Manchester United as a whole when they didn't defend their title when they lost it it just sat so uneasily with them that they that they regrouped and, and focused extra hard and, and basically they couldn't enjoy themselves until they were back on top and and, and look if City's players have that mentality then then Liverpool will be in for a, for a scrap next season I I feel that those two are still still way ahead but also when you think about it obviously this season isn't complete yet and City could couldn't they Seb end up with a treble. They could, Mike. I don't. I don't think they will. I like the way they're playing in the Premier League. I like the sharpness that they've come back with. I mean, they absolutely battered Newcastle on Sunday. I still think major surgery is needed. I think one of the big differences between, for instance, Man City and Liverpool is the availability of two, you know, uh, high-performing fullbacks. I think one of the, if you compare the the appearance statistics of Robertson and Alexander Arnold against. Carl Walker and Benjamin Mendy I think there's a big disparity there I think between them Walker and Mendy have only started I think 30 games this season so it's interesting I I, I just think for the sake of this season if you pit this City team against Bayern Munich for instance Real Madrid are starting to play pretty well at the moment do you think they'll complete the job against Real Madrid I, I don't know because I, for me, the Real Madrid that's emerging out of lockdown is a little bit of a different animal. Mm. I watched them last night against Espanyol and 
they weren't the kind of the the sort of the the, the powerful monolithic side that they've that we've we, the year on year we assume them to be. They're a little bit more total footbally. I'm not saying that um, that Zinedine Zidane has turned into Rinus Michaels, but um, mm-hmm. they are they are a different beast. They're slightly more complex. So it's almost like I know that City will be taking advantage into the second leg, but I think they're facing a different sort of an opponent. And in particular, Karen Benzema is starting to play awfully, awfully well. And you play him against that defence, I've got some concerns. Yeah, so. I got, well, I've got some stats for you. Um, well, Ooh, well, first and foremost, Chelsea had 10 shots on target in, in that game the other the other night, which is... A lot um, in any game, actually, let alone one between two heavyweights. But but in all eight defeats for City in the Premier League this season, and seven of them have come to teams in the in Champions League contention, they've conceded at least twice in all of their defeats this season. So basically, when they come up against the better teams, the ones that do offer that that rich, genuine threat, whether it's on the break or otherwise, they crumble. They concede goals. They are not watertight. So I don't think the two one lead against a side of Real Madrid's attacking quality is is that secure actually. And and I I completely make you right identifying the fullback areas. Yeah, they need to strengthen there and of course to find a, a stronger partner for, for Laporte. And I'd also go as far as to say they need they, they could also do with another defensive minded midfielder. I just feel that Rod- Rodri is a very, very uh, economical player. He's, he's solid, but maybe sometimes you need you need you need two there. And at the moment, obviously with Fernandinho coming towards the end and not having to play at the back, I don't know if Gundogan is that guy anymore. I think he's he's far more attack minded. So so there there are four positions before you know before we've even got started that City need to need to fill quickly. Yeah, the left back one, you know, Benjamin Mendy. Okay, he's had his injury issues, but. He is looking a bit of a liability these days, isn't he? I think so. I, I feel a bit sorry for him, actually, because he's had two serious injuries since he arrived in England. He had a surgery in, I think, September of 2018. And actually, he did his cruciate ligament when he was at when he was at Marseille before he went to Monaco. And he looks like a battle-scarred player. He looks like someone that's sort of lost confidence in his body. And it's a great shame because I remember seeing him when he first arrived. He had a period of about five or six games before he first got injured where you just where you saw that dynamic between him and Walker and you thought, goodness me, this is powerful uh, because he's a, he's a really good technical player. He's a superb athlete. And you'd say the same about Walker and you thought this is a this is this is this is what Liverpool have been able to achieve on their flanks. And ever since then, it's been this sort of shuffled cast of players. Fabian Delph have played there, Zinchenko. Not a bad player, but really just another guy, isn't he? Yeah. Like he's, yeah. he's just he's just a left-footed footballer. Yeah. He's not really the, a fullback. The, the other factor to consider when you're comparing them to to Liverpool is when Liverpool got the two flyers out wide, the same as same as City, but what they've got is a is a much more defensive-minded central midfield unit, haven't they? They've got three players there that aren't all attacking midfielders, or two of the two of the three are not players that 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 always do damage inside the final third. So when the fullbacks fly forward, Henderson could go to the right and and and, and cover any gaps. And, and Vinaldum does the same to the left. And in between, you've got Fabinho. So it, that's where City are different. They don't. They, they, they're so adventurous, aren't they? They what they need really, in my opinion, is a fullbacks that are more rounded. In style. Also, Aid, you know what's really interesting is that on top of that, their their best holding midfielder on top of being thirty four years old is having to moonlight in central defence. 
which is, is is an extraordinary situation for um for a club of their resources. It reminds me a little bit of do you remember that period of of um at Chelsea towards the end with Mourinho where Michael Essien had to had to drop in alongside either John Terry or, or Ricardo Carvalho yeah. because the recruitment in that area just wasn't good. It's it's a strange little blind spot that occurs with wealthy clubs sometimes. Yeah. Is that they can't they can't build a centre back partnership. It's just a strange thing which I don't really um which I can't really explain. But, but it also testifies to a lack of confidence or trust in Stones, Otamendi, who you know, basically, and certainly in the case of, of, of Stones, really probably need to move on to to restart their careers. In terms of the people who might of, of be of the quality they need to recruit, do they go for a, a, you know youth? They've been linked with uh, Dwight McNeil from Burnley. Do they go for a you know a young fullback like Max Aaron's, for instance? They've got Garcia in house as a p- potential centre back. Or either go to you know that staple of transfer um, speculation, Cooley Barley. Um, <laughs> you know who do, who do you think they'll end up going for? Uh, who knows? I, 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 Cooley Barley is 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 the kind of imposing, strong centre half that maybe Mangala should have been and, and never never turned out to be. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, I mean he he was of the same same sort of build, wasn't he? Cooley Barley. When I saw him play against Arsenal. It, he didn't play well actually in the in the Europa League games, but but over a period of time he's he's proven to be a very good central defender. So yeah, he he's someone that would be high on my list, I guess, if I was in the city recruitment department. In terms of a, you know, the Dwight McNeil link is an interesting one because stylistically, him and Sane are, are not dissimilar. Are they both quick, both direct? They offer that threat in behind. They'll run beyond defenders and and, and put crosses into the box, but. But I don't, I don't know if if Dwight Manil will, will, will reach the levels of of Sane. I have to I have to say it's as, as promising as he is. Surely a, a city, a city would surely be better off looking at like a Gareth Bale or something, or, or even a heaven forbid a Neymar if they could afford it in that position. If they were looking for for a like for like replacement, I do feel that for as brilliant as City are in the, in those wide positions. It is all about you know joining in as a second centre forward or, or cutting in on the on the inside. Losing Sane is is a is a problem in my opinion because you have to have a plan B. And for me, I think they do have to replace him properly. Yeah, obviously, let's let's look at the the management side of things and and particularly Pep Guardiola's longevity. Sometimes you know you look at a failure to quickly replace a dynastic manager. I'm thinking about, you know, obviously, Fergie at Manchester United and, to a degree, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. Does that give someone like Chelsea an advantage? Because Chelsea is a club accustomed to adapting to change. There's a churn rate of managers that may be the other clubs that I've mentioned there, and in also in Manchester City's case, they haven't had. You know, should Manchester City already be preparing for a life without Pep? I mean, I if you'd asked me a year ago, I'd have said yes, Mike. But I think I've changed my mind on this because I think that the old style of manager, so I know we always think of Wenger, we think of Ferguson, they weren't really managers in the modern sense because they the, the space they occupied at those clubs was just far bigger. So when, when Ferguson left, what Man United missed wasn't just someone to pick the team and to run the training and to select the tactics. It was this 
essentially a, a solution to every problem at the club. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, overlord is a really good word to describe it. And, and so with Guardiola, influential as he is, um, you know, a generational idolog, all the other, you know, he's most one of the most decorated coaches of all time, and he will be when he finishes. He is still just an employee. He's an employee who sets the tone. He he um he sets the mentality of the club, and he defines what they purchase and what they and how they recruit. Absolutely, but City have all these systems in place to nourish the first team, and that will still be true when he leaves. There'll be adjustments. I'm not saying that they'll just seamlessly fit into a new era, but it's different, and it will always be different from this point on because we'll never go back to that point at which mm. someone becomes, mm. in inverted commas, a manager, mm. a a total solution, a, a, a savior in the same way that Ferguson and Wenger were. It's different. It's challenging. I'm, I'm not pretending otherwise, but it doesn't leave the same void as it used to, Mike. It's a great shout. By the way, what about, I mean, we, we're seeing big problems at Barcelona, aren't we? With Setien, yeah. players don't yeah. like him. What prospect of, of Barca coming back in for Pep? I mean, is that... He wouldn't, he wouldn't work there under the current political situation, you, I don't think. You don't I think don't, so? I can't. No, I, I could see him going back, but I can't see mm. him going back under this regime at okay. the moment. Okay, Yeah, well, yeah. Javi's talking about going back there, isn't he, to, to coach? Yeah. And, you know, and, and that, I suppose, actually in a Champions League context as well, you know, Barcelona probably wouldn't be of the, of the top rank at the moment. Can we just switch very quickly to, to domestic matters in terms of cup, cup competitions? You know, the FA Cup semi-final draw. This is a really unfair question, so I'm going to love asking this to you, Aid. Manchester City, Arsenal. They've got the best part of the draw, haven't they, City? <laughs> well, Arsenal have got the worst part of the draw. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah. Uh, what, the 13-time winners, Arsenal? Um, <laughs> they own the FA Cup. No, look, uh, the one team Arsenal didn't want was City. We've seen, haven't we, just a few days ago, the, the golf really in equality between the two sides and and yeah you wonder how Arsenal will find a way to to beat them but it, it, it happened when they beat Chelsea in the final obviously they, they beat City as underdogs beat Chelsea as massive underdogs in the final so you know you can't write off Arsenal in this competition completely but but yeah City will be will be pleased with the draw they they will have desperately wanted to avoid Man United because Man United seem to have the Indian sign over them and, and Chelsea have just beaten them as well so yeah yeah, for them it's good, and yeah, it's it's, like, it's it's a heavyweight last four. It's just just weird, isn't it? <laughs> two two soulless semi finals at Wembley, and and then the final in front of front of no fans. It's it it's so flat. It's they just, they, they should have you know avoided Wembley, shouldn't they? It's a mausoleum at the best of times, and you know to to play both semi finals there. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. yeah. No. No, I don't get it. I don't think it's an opportunity, wasn't it, to go a bit old school, take take one to Villa Park. You know, Arsenal City, for example, perfect for Villa Park or, or Chelsea, Man United for, for, for that matter. But look, it's, it is what it is. The FA Cup, and I know Seb, uh, Seb feels the same, It's it misses, the FA Cup seems to miss the fans even more than the Premier League, doesn't it? Because it's such a, a big factor. Certainly. But it was interesting that, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for the for the quarterfinal at Norwich chose to make eight changes. Does that give you an impression, Seb, of where the FA Cup stands in in their priorities? Because obviously they got the Europa League as well to look at. Yes, no. I mean, I, I think it was telling that as that game looked like it might edge away from Man United, or when Norwich went down to ten men, Solskjaer was pretty quick to bring on Pogba, Matic, and an extra time Martial, which is. Two hundred million pounds worth of subs against the team, and the Rashford. team bottom. <laughs> yeah, and, and Rashford had come on in uh, after an hour. 
I don't think so. I, I think it was not disrespectful, but I, I think Solstar overestimated the progress his team had made because I think what that game showed was that actually there's a lot of work to do at Man United. That's pretty dismal performance for the most part. And also simply sticking Bruno Fernandes in the middle of your midfield is actually not a complete solution to every issue because that Norwich team, we've discussed them quite a lot on this pod before. They're going down and they're going down because they're just a bit lightweight, I'm afraid. They're, they're pretty, they've got some nice footballers, but they can't defend particularly well. They don't pose enough of an, an attacking threat. I don't think Solskjaer would take it lightly because I, if, if, you are, if you're him and you still have well, let's be honest, people like me chirping away and saying, I don't think you're the person to be, um, you know, you're the person to be to be leading this team forward. An FA Cup is awfully useful. A Europa League, I don't think I put my eggs in that basket because because of the format now and because of the way the competition is going to be staged. That's a, that's a very strange tournament to plan for all of a sudden. It's almost like a mini World Cup or a, or a club World Cup, I suppose. So no, I, I think it's something he desperately wants to win. I think he was just adapting around the circumstances and... You know, Manchester United's limitations were were on show. Um, well, it was very te- it was very telling, wasn't it, that so few took their chance to to shine, and that does reveal a certain lack of depth in the squad. Just want to isolate it in two cases: one positive, one negative, probably. Jesse Lingard, he looks like he's being left behind, doesn't he? Yeah, it happens, Mike. It, you have your day you, where you're the main man, and and you think the world is at your feet, and you assume you're going to be there for, forever, and and suddenly, that moment dawns you where where they bring in players that are significantly better than you are, and you, and, it, and it's it's simply a case of ah right standards have gone up, am I good enough? And then when you're out of the side and you're just dropped in on occasion, the pressure on you on someone like Jesse Lingard to to hit the ground running and be brilliant is is, is can be overwhelming, and it's also really hard because you lack that match that match sharpness. I just feel that. That, yeah, Jesse needs to go. He's not become a poor player. He's still got something to offer in Premier League terms, but his his time at the top table, so to speak, is probably done. But look, he could end up at I don't know, a Leicester, a Wolves, a, a, an Everton, and and rediscover his mojo. But but for me, he's at that stage in his career where he has to be wanted and has to be you know yeah just just have a manager that. That, that likes him, that loves him. And uh, we all need a little bit of a cuddle, don't we, every now and again. And I, I, don't, I don't think Oli's going to do that. He's, he's found a new love, hasn't he, in Bruno Fernandes and, and several of the other younger players, your Mason Greenwoods and, and Daniel James of this world. They're, they're the ones that he's, he's giving court time to. And poor old Jesse is, is stood on the side with, with a bib in hand, playing linesman in the practice games, isn't he? It's, it's, it's awful. He needs to go. I think he gets a... Sorry, I, I think I think I think I think Jesse Lingard gets a, a really raw deal. Like I, I think the way he's first of all, like when he when he broke into the team and when he sort of became a, a semi permanent fixture, people got irritated with his social media presence on the basis that I know he's not the youngest, but he was a, a guy in his mid twenties who enjoyed being a professional footballer. I mean, there are worse crimes. And also it's interesting, isn't it, that people have forgotten what a good player he is. And that's kind of, I mean, that's that's. I absolutely agree with Aidan in the sense that if he if he goes to, if he goes to the right team, all of a sudden he becomes that he becomes that figure that he was in the World Cup. Okay, not someone you build a team around, but someone still capable of doing you know pretty decent things on a football pitch. I mean, think of his think of his goals at Wembley for Man United, and think of his capacity to insert himself into really important moments. It's quite a rare footballing trait, and I feel like 
he's kind of I mean I don't think for instance he belongs in the Daniel James category I don't think Daniel James is a is anything other than a kind of a seven out of ten player who happens to be really 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 quick I mean he's okay but he shouldn't be I mean he shouldn't be a, a long-term part of Man United's future if Man United are aiming towards the top of the table he's not that kind of player and for me someone like Lingard is is much more rounded much more capable much more useful in in many more situations and it's it's sad and I, I hope he gets the right move because I I hope there's time left in his prime so that he by the time he comes to the end of his career people think yeah this is a pretty good footballer and I don't feel he has that respect at the moment no but if we're looking for feel-good stories Odion Agarlo five goals in four starts now is he making a case to be kept on long term well he's 31 isn't he that's the issue yeah I think what it's proved this loan spell is that is the need for a penalty box player in the Manchester United squad in the in the match day squad you've got to have one and and, and Martial and, and Rashford are two gifted forwards aren't they but but they're not what I call penalty box players, they, they do sit, well, Martial just scored a hat-trick, so so he, he will argue otherwise. He's, 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 he's a good finisher, but he's more than that, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? It's it's, it's, a, it's a number nine. They need a number nine in the squad, yeah. and Agarlo is a number nine. <laughs> in a strange kind of way, even though he might earn himself a, you know, a longer deal, what his success has shown is that Man United need his type of player, and what they might they might go out and do is spend you know four times as much on a, on a younger model. Someone stylistically very similar to, to Igalo. But yeah, he's, he's doing great. It's a pickup that many of us scoffed at, myself included, at the time. And, and, and we've got to eat our words and say that, that, that actually was a, was a smart piece of business. And it, it's a reminder as well, isn't it, that, that over in China, you know, not everyone's finished. That There could be players that you could, could bring back from there that can, can make an impact. Okay, Seb, you've got uh, Edward Wood's wallet landing on your desk with a, with a huge thud. Uh <laughs> Would you take a hundred million out of that wallet and give it to Dortmund for for Sancho? I mean, yes, because I I think Jaden Sancho is absolutely worth it. Do I think that's the right move to be making at the moment? It's hard to say. It's such a strange world. And if if this if it were normal and we were working on the basis that May United have still got the same income streams, it's a no brainer. It's reflexively yes. And also, like I I think the value of Sancho. It's not just who he is individually and his set of attributes and his abilities and the assists and the goals that you know he provides. It's what he allows your attack to be. I see him as a kind of a connecting piece because he's so intelligent on the ball and he knows when to release it. Can you imagine what he might be able to do with players of you know Anthony Martial's ability, Marcus Rashford's ability, in the future Mason Greenwood's ability, Bruno Fernandez's vision? It'd be very, very exciting. So it's a yes, but a cautious one because I... I don't know how normal this new normal is. God, that's a terrible sentence, isn't it? But you know what I mean. It's um, yeah. it's very difficult to judge. But I, I love Jaden yeah. Sancho. I, I, if I was in a position to pay up to 150 million pounds for him, I think I'd do it. Right. Okay. Remind me to ask you for a loan. <laughs> um, <laughs> let, let's look at you know one of the, dif- the sort of definitive factors I've, I've sort of gathered from the restart is the way the biggest clubs are hitting their stride in the way that, you know, Leicester haven't, for instance, where there's a great depth of squad and they're able to take the demands in their stride. I'm thinking of Chelsea here because they've actually done terrifically well, haven't they, in terms of, I think it's five wins on the bounce now, 100% record since the restart. 
that FA Cup semi-final against United will tell us a lot, won't it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think we've already learned a lot about about Lampard and and what he's building at Chelsea. It's it's exciting. We we've bigged them up, haven't we? In in recent podcasts, I think he was very decisive, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, he, his substitutions have been great, haven't they? I mean, he's 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 produced game changing decisions since since we've begun again, which is is not going to do his reputation any harm as a as an astute head coach. He's he's learning fast. We, we've known for years that. He's a really intelligent lad, Frank Lampard. He's always been clever, and he's using that that intelligence really, really wisely at the moment. I I like him. I think he's impro- he's a significantly better manager or head coach now than he was at Derby County, where I think he made a lot of his his mistakes. So yeah, it's exciting times for Chelsea. What I think the next step in in their journey under him is is to find that backbone in defence. Is he is he going to be bold enough to? To get rid of Kepper and 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 really spend big money, I know they spent huge money on Kepper. Basically, admit that that was a mistake and go again and and target target the best around. Jan Oblak is 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 the one that that I think would would transfer transform actually Chelsea into into title contention if they could afford him or prize him away from Atletico. Is he is he going to be bold enough to make that call and to and to change the centre halves? I think at the moment. The centre halves are, are still a weakness. Uh, yeah, Christensen's too nice. Zuma's not quite good enough, and, and Rudiger, slight question marks. I think he, he, he's the best of a, a mediocreish bunch, Rudiger. So, so yeah, is is he going to make those 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 tough tough calls? I think he will, and, and when he does, put that behind what's going to be an incredibly exciting attacking midfield unit. They're looking good. Yeah, they've been linked, haven't they, as a goalkeeper with Andre Onana, who will be an obvious upgrade on Kepa. You know, some talk, isn't there, of Kepa going to Valencia on loan, perhaps. If they are going to restructure that defence, one interesting factor could be Declan Rice. Do you see him as a centre-back? No, which is difficult because I I, I don't really see him as a central midfielder either. (laughs) He kind of exists in the netherworld between the two. Oh, no. Um. But I, you know what, guys, I, I think that's actually, the way I look at Declan Rice, I, I think speaks volumes about West Ham because the way they're playing and the kind of the, the fragilities that exist, Declan Rice, or, that exist around Declan Rice have now affected the way that we all look at him specifically because he's having to be moved around to compensate for things that aren't there. And for a player that's still really in his formative years, that's a huge problem. I'm also, I think there's a little bit of kind of West Ham-itis to it as well in the way that he's perceived. He's a young English player who's come through at West Ham and I think he's been slightly overrated as a result. I believe that he can become a very good player, but I think there are issues in his game, particularly defensively. I don't I don't buy him as an asset without the ball at the moment. I think he's not a particularly good one-on-one tackler. I don't think he reads the game as well as he could do. He's kind of cut from that sort of deep-lying playmaker cloth that a lot of midfielders are, a lot of a lot of the ball-playing defenders are. So I, I don't I honestly I, I don't I don't think he's good enough to play for Chelsea oh, at the moment. Harsh, yeah, no, I, yeah. No, I, I mean I, I I'm not saying that he won't be in the future. Yeah. I just mean that mm. they're he's one of those guys that probably needs a landing spot between West Ham and Chelsea before he goes to that level. He needs a, I think Spurs. He needs a couple of years. No, I don't think he's I don't think he, with with a kind of with the the financial resources that they have shown in the past, although they probably won't have use of them in the future, but I, I don't think he's good enough for there either. Really? 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 Um, yeah, okay. No, I don't think mm-hmm. so. In a, in a wider point, A, is yeah. it as simple as having a, you know, a no-budget owner 
to restock the team, which essentially is, is what Chelsea's situation is? Or does the modern era that we're looking at require real smartness in recruitment? Yeah, well, I think you always require smartness in your, in your recruitment, don't you? I mean, it's... Liverpool proves it, guys. Like, the, yeah. it's a... You've got to have both. Yeah. You can't, you can't just be, you can't just have an oligarch sovereign wealth fund anymore. You've got to know how to use it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's, it's so, so important. Clubs that have wasted money and, and City have, have wasted a lot of money on some players that, defensive players that, that, that we, have, we are claiming are not good enough. And they've not been that quick to, to replace them because obviously under financial fair play rules, you, you, there's only, there are limits to what you can spend or, or should be able to spend anyway. So you've got to be smart with your recruitment always. It's not just down to, to oligarch owners. And and look, Chelsea are making all the right moves, I think, in, in, in the exciting talent that they're bringing in up front, in Werner and, and Zayic, attacking midfield winger. But they can't neglect you know, the defence. For me, on the Declan Rice, I slightly disagree. I think Declan has the potential to play for a Chelsea, a Spurs, a, a teams like that. But... But right now, Chelsea's midfield, I don't, I don't see any issues with it. I think it's very strong. I think, I think they've got six or seven players for three spots, really. I don't see that as being anywhere anywhere they need to strengthen. Do you see him as, as someone that could go to that kind of club next season? I, I, I do, if it wasn't Chelsea. I just don't really? think he's as good as what Chelsea have got. I, th- I personally okay. feel he, he's better than what Spurs have, have got in, in that position, better than what Arsenal have got in that position. And probably others, uh, some others too. But uh, Manchester United, uh, potentially, even even City. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to big him up too much because I, I share some of your reservations on, on Declan Rice. But I do think with a good coach, it, with better players around him, he he could thrive. You know, potentially as a, as a backup to Rodri at City, even or, or someone to provide competition, or even on occasion to play along. Alongside him in a four-two-three-one. Look, maybe I'm over-egging him, but I, yeah, I, I, I will agree to disagree on on him for now. I reckon. Okay. Well, I've I've already asked Ada a painfully unfair question, so I might as well do the same for you. <laughs> sir. Um, Tottenham, fifty-nine years and counting. Have they missed their chance? Oh, without question. Yeah. I mean, it's gone. The window's shut. Tottenham are. I mean, at best, I think they're in a holding pattern, trying to sort of milk the very best out of a group of players that are, are at their end. Certainly their defensive players are um, are on their way out. Legs have gone all over the place. Big question marks against team's biggest asset, Harry Kane. And big question marks over whether the person that they've invested huge amounts of money salary-wise in is really the right man to to lead any sort of revival. If you mix in the concerns over things like transfer budget and wage budget and lost match day revenue, no chance. And that's especially true if Newcastle's takeover goes through and another sovereign wealth fund enters the Premier League. It just, it shows because I I think also, we've touched on this before, there's a subliminal issue at Tottenham in that because they've gone through the, the Pochettino era and because they came so close and because they showed their hand in terms of what they do when they come close and that they are unwilling to, to follow a Liverpool-like lead and say, right, well, here are our weaknesses and here's the money to solve them. Tottenham didn't do that. Tottenham chose to be cheap. And Daniel Levy tried to get away with, he tried to play the continuity card and tried to kind of, to 
hoped that the team would evolve as quickly as other teams were able to restock, which is never is never really going to happen. If you're a, an aspiring player who wants to win something and you remember that example, you're going to go to Tottenham? Are you going to go somewhere where you know that probably your best your best outcome is to nearly win something? I don't think you go to Tottenham anymore. And I don't think you, if you're a particular type of player, I don't think you 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 want to work with Mourinho. And I think the... Um, Unfortunately, the uh, Tangi and Dembele situation is kind of proof of that. They'll exist in the kind of fourth to seventh to eighth range, I think. But that's that's their limit for now, I would have thought. If for the sake of argument, Aid, the Newcastle takeover is given the go-ahead, how long do you think it would take to construct a team that can challenge for the title? Five years? Well, it depends on the money. It depends on the coach, doesn't it, as well? I think you've got to choose the right manager. City. Well, there'll be, there'll be oodles of money, <laughs> presumably. Pochettino, I suppose. Well, if Pochettino fancies it, yeah, potentially. Well, it took City four years, didn't it? 2008, the ownership came in and they won the title in 2012. I suppose they made some mistakes en route to that success. So, yeah, it's, it's not going to be... A quick, quick fix, but but it would it would probably immediately propel them into a top eight team, wouldn't it? Someone that can challenge for for Europe. So it's just going to the next level and and to challenge for the title. Yeah, you're, you're talking three, four, five, five years. But 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 I would go back to the question. You know, Newcastle is a different different type of club, and and, and I do feel that it's not Manchester. Manchester is, is somewhere where the superstars were were happy to go. From abroad, will will they will they want to go to Newcastle? I like Newcastle. I think it's a fantastic place, but I do think that location might might hold them back a little bit in in their acquisition. They're going to have to be smart, like as we've just said, and maybe go with go with younger players that 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 they could rather than the the older superstar types. The the, the next generation of of emerging stars might be the way forward for them and, and the same applies for Spurs by the way whoever they whoever does come in for Jose Mourinho I just think they have to follow Chelsea Manchester United Arsenal's lead to some some degree and and put put faith in in high quality youngsters and and you know what's well yeah what's what's um what's what occurred to me yesterday was that if you were if you're a Premier League team I think you quite want that Newcastle takeover to happen because it gives you an opportunity like whenever whenever a takeover happens a club always goes through that 18 months of silliness when <laughs> it's like it's, it's the Craig Bellamy Wayne Bridge phase <laughs> where there is there is there is every every player you just want all of them no matter whether they fit your side or not you just you, you're throwing money around and so you can see for instance someone like Daniel Levy saying oh you know we'll we'll give you this Serge Aurier for 35 million if you're you know and and, and it's actually in in a way depending on how smart the people are that get installed into whatever this new sporting department looks like at St. James's Park, it presents a hell of an opportunity for clubs who are struggling financially and who who need to to fill a few holes in their balance sheet. Yeah. So it's, um, Especially it's now. a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah. no, the Premier League needs that injection of, yeah. of cash, doesn't it? Even though we're, I think a lot of people have, have reservations over that, that type of ownership. Does it need though? You know, you know, we're looking. We we talked about the start of a dynasty in, involving Liverpool, which is a very emotionally engaged football club. Does English football need as many of those type of clubs as possible? And obviously, Newcastle is right at the top of that. I I found that FA Cup tie at the weekend incredibly depressing <laughs> because you know that that ground that St James's should have been singing both literally and metaphorically and it was just 
awful. It was a wasteland. It was a tidy tip. It was awful. <laughs> do you, so do you, does, does English football need a healthy and perhaps a wealthy Newcastle? Not, not under these circumstances to me. I mean, uh, from a, um, uh, an ethical standpoint, I stand against it. I don't, I don't want this owner in the Premier League because of what he stands for. I think there are question marks about some of the other people associated with this and some of the deals that they've done in the past and their kind of their ability to recuse themselves from any sort of moral responsibility I find quite repellent. But I I mean let, let me let me let me simplify Mike. It needs a Newcastle that's not owned by Mike Ashley. Like give me any other wealthy owner and I'd agree with you. I just this is um this is a for me a new low for the Premier League if it goes through. For, for, from a fan point of view, it'd be exciting because Newcastle fans are, are great, aren't they? I think we, we all like that. And I remember playing against Kevin Keegan's Newcastle when they were brilliant, when they should have won the league, played against them that season at St James's Park. And it was rocking and it was, it was a, a joy, actually, to be on the pitch and to be involved in, in a game against them at that time. It was such an exciting place to be. So, so there's that part of it. I think the Premier League will be enhanced for, for, for having a good Newcastle again. But yeah, I'm with Seb on the, on the, on the moral side of it for sure. Mm. Incidentally, Aid, did you ever take your boots into a game in a Tesco carrier bag? I thought, Tier- <laughs> I thought Tierney was, was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he is old school. He's just so old school. You only have to see it with the, the way he tucks his shirt in. I mean, the shirts are designed these days, aren't they? Well, you don't need to tuck them in. But he, he, he he's determined to. He was obviously brought up that way. He, I, and even even his haircut, it doesn't look like an expensive haircut, does it? He's just, he, he's just got it done at the... Well, if there was a local barber, he'd get it done there, wouldn't he? So, for a tenor. So he, he, he's one of those guys, and I love it. And I love the fact that he carried his bags, boots in a carry bag. Did I do it? Probably, actually. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. You were I wasn't, definitely I, I, a Gucci man. No, 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 no. I wasn't. Definitely. I wasn't. I definitely wasn't. <laughs> I was, um, but I probably wasn't as. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't made of the teeny mould either. Yeah, I was somewhere in between. But um, yeah, good on him. And 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 I tell you what, he's a player. He, he if he can stay fit and develop under Arteta, he'll be all right. Good. Well, we've gone a bit off pace there, but can we bring it back to actually the nature of football clubs themselves? What do Wolves and, to a lesser extent, Leicester, do you think, tell us about the natural limitations of clubs of that type? You know, basically, with their development, it's going to boil down to their ability to retain their best players, isn't it? What do you think? Wow, what a, what a big question. Yes, I think so. I mean, uh, and of the two, I, I think there's a little bit more momentum in Wolves' project. I feel like I, I understand the sort of the, the, the wealth and the, the capacity for growth at Leicester City. But at the moment, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that players like Ruben Neves remain entirely committed. If you remember when Neves first turned up in English football, he joined Wolves when they were in the championship. And everyone, every pundit to a man said, he'll spend a year there. And then as soon as Wolves get promoted, he'll be off to Liverpool, Man City, Man United. And he buys in. And if the more you read about players like Neves, and I include Jota, Martinho, the goalkeeper, Patricio, there's never any discontent. There's never any agitating for moves. And that, that's, that's fascinating because we've all spent time in Wolverhampton. It's a nice place, but it's not the most glamorous. And yet these players are very satisfied by, by their lives there. And that suggests a couple of things, including a faith in what's being built around them. It is going to be a challenge. If someone puts £80 million on the table for Adam Traore, that's going to be a huge 
that's going to be very difficult to resist. And it's going to be very difficult to keep his head focused because that's a, an extraordinary opportunity for him to move to presumably a City or a Liverpool type club. But it's, um, it's, it's a tightrope walk. And I know this because... Tottenham went through it themselves during the sort of the the Harry Redknapp, Andre Villas Boas times when you have a group of players with which you can achieve something, a, a Modric, a Bale, a Van der Vaart, and then the moment you peek your head above the parapet, someone picks somebody off. They take a Modric, they take a Bale, and then it, it's like um you know do you remember snakes snakes and ladders when you're a kid? <laughs> yeah. It's like that. But if you're if you're if you're a, if you're a Wolves, if you're a Leicester, if you were a Spurs ten years ago, or even now. There aren't many ladders, are there? It's just snakes. It's yeah. just snakes but, everywhere. There but, snakes. but fewer snakes at the moment because uh, <laughs> no one's got money or, or the, there's, yeah, right. there's less That's money true. around. That's so true. maybe this pandemic might actually preserve the stability of, of Leicester and Wolves for one more season. I don't know. It, it is a crossroads. I think for Leicester, we know that they're a selling club. They will cash in at the highest price. But what they've got at the moment, even though they're not playing well at the moment, we know that. They're, they're having a, a flat period. But they've got what they've got is, is is three or four really promising young players, and if they were they were to lose them and to have to start again, I think that that's their momentum gone really. So so it'd be interesting to see if they can keep them and and build a team around. I'm talking about Didi and, and Madison and, and Chilwell really, primarily, and Harvey Barnes potentially to the mix as well. Yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Let's look at other clubs who might make a mark. You know, we've talked about Wolves. They've come up from the championship with a you know, well-funded, well-thought-out strategy. What about a club like Leeds? Can, can they come up from the championship and make a mark? You know, In many ways, it's a ridiculous club. It should have been back before now. There's a huge sense of self-entitlement there. You know, they're legends in their own mind, a lot of them. But can a club like that, with its potential, come up and make the mark? It depends what happens next. So with Leeds and specifically with Andrea Redrazani, because of his friendship with Nasir El Khalifa, PSG chairman, there's always been the suggestion that should Leeds reach this level, there'll be some kind of takeover. And to be honest, there's enough ambiguity in some of the statements he's issued about this and some of the interviews he's given to give credence to that idea. So if you if you substitute QSI, Qatari Sports Investments, into the situation at Ellen Road some point in the future, of course. I mean that because that's that's the potential tap, isn't it? That that turns your your world green and you know it gives you the unlimited supply of uh, of money. That's you cheating on Championship Manager in the nineties, you know. <laughs> um, so so yes, but I I just I wonder because I for another project I was I was doing some research into Radrazani uh, not so long ago and um, he's someone whose aims I don't fully understand yet. You know, he he talks a good game and he speaks of sort of wanting to get Leeds into the into the champ into the Premier League and he's on the verge of doing that. Congratulations if that goes ahead. What happens next, I'm not sure of. Whether there is a buyout as a takeover, I don't know. So without without knowing for certain where this story is headed for, it's quite difficult to answer that question. Yeah, I, but as yeah, a great point though. Great point. I think I think you're right. I mean, yeah, they they need it because they're, they're not. They've got a very small squad. They they're all paid very well, but there's not very many of them at Leeds. I don't think no. under Radrazani they're especially you know swilling with cash. What they've got on a footballing point of view, they could emulate a Sheffield United because what they've got is a very good structure, solid defensively. Don't score many goals, but but I think being able to. To stay in games would be solid is probably more of a virtue for a promoter side. So I think they, if they come up and there is no takeover, I think they would survive but not necessarily thrive. 
they need they need that injection to be the leads of old, I guess. Football's sort of nerddom would be in absolute excelsis, wouldn't it? Be the thought of Bielsa in the oh. Premier League. You know, obviously he's more of a cult than a coach, isn't he? Is that is that cult justified? Is he as good as they say he is? I, I rate him. I, th- I think he's such a, a nightmare to play against because he, his team's come up with such unusual movement and positioning. And yeah, he's. I mean, you just have to look at what what previous managers at Leeds did with largely the same group of players, and and he, he has taken them to a to a different plane, really, without without having to to break the bank. I think he's a he's a sensational coach, flawed slightly in his stubbornness. And his, his, you know, unwillingness to to use his the full depth of his squads, but no, he's he's a very very smart coach. You know, one of the one of the most unique coaches I think I've I've ever seen really. But I, I don't know as much about him as as some other people you know in in our industry that have followed his career. But from what I've seen of him in in English football, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I, I mean, I, I, there are no guarantees that he would stay at Leeds. I mean, Bielsa, above all else, is a bit of a contrarian. He is not an orthodox thinker in terms of uh, where he commits his future. He's always made a big thing of making his coaching decisions based on what he's going into in a, in a three-dimensional sense. So the squad and the team and the resources, yes, but also things like the city. He's one of those guys that wants to get a feeling for his environment. Now, what would be fascinating is if a takeover came in, if, if a takeover happened, I don't think Bielsa is, is ideologically the fit for that because it changes what leads are. And I think there's a, a very real possibility that probably not this summer, but at least within a year, he walks away. I don't, I don't see that kind of coaching style with all this sort of the intensity that comes with it and the kind of the research and the dedication. You just can't stay uh, in the same place for that long. But the, the, the secret to ultimate success, right, in, in, yeah. in a football manager or in a football team, the, the secret is get the best players and get them working unbelievably hard. As a team, now he gets his players working unbelievably hard. They are super fit, and they are disciples of Bielsa. Now he's got a good group of players, and he's got them believing and working, and he's it's taken them to the top of the championship. If he was given the funds, and I, I do absolutely see where Seb's coming from, but if they were to to bring in, you know, the right type of characters that had more ability, it's frightening what they could achieve potentially under, under a coach. I mean, if you if you if you bring that kind of money into a football club, like who's making the decisions about who's coming in as a result of that? Mm. So if I'm, let's default the QSI situation yeah. into this and say, right, they take over Leeds United. Mm. Are they going to say to someone like Marcelo Bielsa and a sporting director, right, this is this is your money to spend, or are they going to start incorporating other objectives, you know, a commercial strategy into who they sign, visibility. They want this player because of what they allow, the kind of billboard they allow us to build in Santiago, for instance. Is Bielsa going to sign up for that project? That that I, I completely agree about what he inspires in players, but I'd say it's what he inspires in players of a certain mentality and standard. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been the success at Leeds. Yeah. If if you if you trot in like a couple of players who you know kind of interested in the contract and the basic wage and the big fee and the notoriety, I don't. I, I think I think there's a huge drop off in his effect. Mm. Well, let's try and draw all this together then. Thoughts for the day, chaps. Aid, what you? What do you want to get off the chest? Well, um, Sean Dyche actually is coming to my thinking just purely on the basis that the, he's making noises, isn't he? For the first time really in a while of, of not being completely in sync with the ownership. He's, there's one or two grumbles here and there. And, the, and there's speculation I've read in, uh, you know, in the media that, that indicate he's, 
he's almost just you know plotting his his path out of Turf Moor, and 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 it just got me thinking, well, where where would he go? A, a while back when Burnley were flying so high. Everton seemed a logical choice. That was as good as he could go, and 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 they didn't they didn't turn to him. They went to Marco Silva. Where where would he end up? And and I've looked at the Premier League table. If Sean Dyche were to leave in the next sort of six months from Burnley, I think West Ham is the is the only place I can I can see him pitching up. So so that's just a little 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 plant a uh, seed planted there. Sean Dyche at Burnley is that is that love affair coming towards an end? I wonder. I think I'd pay to see Sean Dyche and Karen Brady uh, across the negotiating table. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but where where would he go? I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm not seeing. Palace? I'm not seeing. But I mean, if I'm Palace, you're not getting rid of Hodgson, are you? I mean, he's he's fine at the moment. Mm. Right. Anyway, that's the tantalising one. What about you, uh, Seb? Well, it's from last week, actually, Mike. I noticed that um, Mason Mount has been paying for. Vitessa season tickets for healthcare workers uh, over in Arnhem. Uh, obviously, he spent a, a year there on loan. I don't know Mason, but I, I sp- spoke to his father a few times, and he's a nice chap. And Mason's career is obviously on the up. And I just thought it was a lovely gesture. I know there's it's one amongst many, and there's an awful lot of um, of benevolence among his peer group at the moment. But I just thought it was something worth worth um, you know worth highlighting. So it didn't get a lot of publicity, and he just did it for the sake of doing it. And um, yeah, full of admiration for that. And uh, yeah, can I just second that? I I, I think I want to see uh, uh, Sean Dyche versus the West Ham owners. Uh, that would uh, that you know that that goes on Amazon Prime. That's your that's your all or nothing series. What are you doing wasting your time with Spurs? Do, 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 let's have that. That would be football's answer to the Long Good Friday, wouldn't it? All right. Well, I'll round things off. You know, obviously we've just had a, an FA Cup weekend. Not the greatest. I think some of the games really missed the fans. But I still love what that competition represents. It's a traditional link to the past and the days in which we all fell in love with the game. Now, when I was a kid, the season was launched with the Charity Shield. It was rebranded as the Community Shield. But let's be honest, it's long since lost its relevance. Tradition has its limits, especially when it involves a glorified friendly. Now, there's a lot of talk about it not being played at the start of next season because of scheduling issues but again to be honest it's probably time to go one step further and scrap it all together there are better ways to celebrate football's links to its community for instance i'd like to see fundraising events tied into each club's opening home game that works what about you please let us know and thanks once again for joining us here on the football writers podcast What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 